Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. So every morning, as you know, Peter, we have our all company meeting, you know, we're all talking for 15 minutes and giving updates, et cetera. And Jim messages me at the beginning of it, knowing that I go last with my update and said, I bet you, you can't insert the word vegetable into your update, but you have to do it completely naturally and without laughter sort of thing. And I was like, done child's play, like, give me something harder. So I did it successfully because I worked in the UK weather over the summer and Jackie's vegetable garden. No one was, was any the wiser. I didn't even, I don't remember that at all. I don't remember. Jim was super impressed. Yeah. I was convinced she just said garden, but then I went back, listened to it again and it said vegetable garden. It's all right. I'm five bucks down. We'll continue to work in words of the day and I will be a net winner. I feel confident. I can stump her. This is like one of my highest and best uses, Jim. Just let's be clear. This is not something that you're going to win. I'm starting to realize that. <laughs> Random, awkward chit chat is sort of what I do best. <laughs> yes, you very much appreciate it. As do I. I like when you make things awkward. It makes it funny. Speaking of awkward and funny, Peter now has his coffee. Peter, are you going to survive this discussion now that you have some caffeine at hand? I'm much better. Thank you very much. Yes, okay. caffeine is important to me. So what are we talking about today? Yeah. Jim, tell us what's going on. We're going to talk about the year's two biggest trades, which are coming off, the good and the bad. The good is AMC has been fantastic, I think, for many, at least many of our clients. And then we had a good M&A deal in J&J and Kenviews. But both are unwinding now, which prompted me because a couple of days prior, I took a look at our discretionary balances for ESEC and they were all-time highs, which was exciting. And then I looked again this morning and they were not at all-time highs and said, uh-oh, what's going on here? We'll start with J&J and Kenview. J&J spun off all but 10% of Kenview, which they had begun with an IPO last year. It was a pretty juicy deal. There was good deal spread in it. They gave a 7% discount for any J&J shareholders who chose to take up on the deal and receive Kenview shares, which ended up being an eight for one, eight Kenview shares for one J&J. This is kind of high level guess for anybody who doesn't know the deal. Because of that 7% discount, hedge funds would love this trade. Even if it's expensive, you get long J&J and short J&J and short KView is the trade. Long J&J, tendered in. Then you get some of your shares accepted, some not. So the part that isn't is what you want to short J&J against. And then the part that's accepted turns into KView. You want to short that ahead so that you're basically net flat. That's one of probably many trades, but that's kind of how I understood it. KView was trading around 60% fee, which is pretty expensive, but for a short period, you could endure it. There was a good spread that 7% backed into what equated to, before you look at costs of the trade, about $1.75 in the trade gross. So then we would charge for the J&J short, the J&J hedge, and then we would charge for the KVU or anybody who had shares of either would do the same. So it really became about a buck in it. And it's probably done on a leverage basis, something that I didn't factor in too heavily at first. And in hindsight, probably should have. So hedge funds aren't sitting around on piles of cash looking to put this trade on. They borrow cash from their primes, put the trade on. 
if there's spread in it and you can get the borrow on both those pieces, you could put that on as much borrow that you can get from a cash perspective. I didn't factor in that J&J is a very expensive stock. And so to put this on and make good revenue, you had to put on billions. What ended up happening in the end, the spread never collapsed. It was always there. It traded the J&J piece, which is what ESEC had the most of to trade. KVU was 60 fee up until the last week, dropped to 30 fee. Then supply hits the street today and Monday. And so that will unwind as a deep special and probably be a warm or a small special. But on the J&J side, it's a GC name, as you can imagine, because it's a massive large cap. It started trading around 9 cents, 9, 10, 11 cents about a month ago got as deep as 50 cents, which we thought was pretty good value, but there was very little traded there. And then traded off into the 20, 25 cents, which is where most got done. And in the end was trading back down around 10 cents. All the while, deal spread remains wide. So it really became a supply issue. There was so much supply of J&J, TNA, that it was hard to force anyone who wanted to put on that trade to pay more. So you apply that theory and then say, well, at the end of the trade, so long as they can get the leverage and the spreads wide, it's a shorter tenor short on the KVU. Hedge funds are going to want to come in and they'll be willing to pay the 50 if that's all that's offered. So I think a lot of lenders took that perspective and ended up sitting on shares and not trading all the TNA. We can see that in the metrics through data lend and through market. But what wasn't factored in by most, I think, is that balance sheet was tighter than normal. I think what we heard from a number of primes or folks who would help facilitate this trade from a cash perspective is that they had concentration limits, whether it was concentration to one name, concentration to one M&A. If you think about the deal funds, they're only, what, 5, 10, on the widest end, 15% of the hedge fund community. So if you concentrate a lot of your leverage to just a handful of guys doing one trade, and that they get stopped out. It wasn't a home run. It was a double. We'll take it put to bed. It's unwinding today. We're seeing balances go down. It looked to me like if you look at the metrics in J&J, it looks about 35 billion has come off already. So I guess there's probably another five or 10 billion to unwind on Monday. So, you know, that trade got put on in the kind of call it 40 to 50 billion area, maybe a little bit more people had shares that weren't lent through agent lenders. So to translate then all of that, so two main reasons why maybe this was a more depressed deal name than you might have first thought, one being just that it's a mega large cap and everyone holds it. So there's tons of supply out there. And the Mm -hmm. other being driven by how expensive the stock is and what that does to the cost of putting the trade on for the other side. Are those kind of the two main factors that somewhat depress then the economics that someone could obtain via stock loan or probably alternative routes to market outside of a stock loan? Yep. I would say definitely supply, but the second I would recharacterize, not as cost, but as ability to access cash. Okay. It wasn't the cost of that cash, that there was enough in the deal to absorb any cost of the cash plus the cost of the two shorts to get into the trade, but it was just the ability to access it. So the concentration of either counterparty exposure or single name exposure on the prime, there wasn't that much offered. I initially had thought leverage is low or close to lows over the last five years. So there was plenty of cash to go around. So I assumed it could get put on. But what I didn't factor in is that it was just very concentrated. So, And when you started out by saying to us that a little while ago, we were at all-time highs in terms of our on-loan balances for our discretionary activity, and now it's come off a bit since... I mean, I'm sure some of that can be attributed to these names being on loan, just given the size and the market cap. But 
Are there other things driving that? Were you making no. a bigger statement or was it no. really just that these deal names have now come yeah. off? So it was just the J&J came off. KVU wasn't something we were big in, but for others, KVU's also come off in terms of on loan balance, not just rate and AMC. AMC, okay. So that deal finally converged, got approved and closed this week. I believe it was yesterday, but unsure on the exact date, but it was a great trade for us. They're collapsing into one line, probably remains a warm or hard name, but there's a lot more supply at this point, but got really, really hard to borrow and expensive. We had an existing borrow at the very end of the deal as hedge funds still hadn't unwound it. They were squeezing the last bit of juice out of it. Great trade. What's the value that we did versus other people in this trade as far as trying to get the best performance possible? Because my understanding is that we did really well versus what could have happened. Is it just a timing issue that uh -huh. we executed well on and getting our clients to get the right elections? Or how does an agent lender earn their keep on these types of trades? Yeah, it's a good question, Peter. You're probably hearing me pounding my chest about how great we are. But the reality is, I think it's more a function of the ESEC model. We have connectivity to our clients. And what's required on deal names is to know what they're going to do well in advance so that you can work with brokers and set up these trades optimize value for the clients. So I think we we're able to do that in most cases for those who we didn't get. Maybe they were contemplating doing the trade themselves, contemplating tendering, contemplating just outright selling. So they couldn't guarantee that that J&J position would be there. It really depends on the mandate for the lender. But for those folks, they probably received something closer to the 10 or 15 cents per share. Whereas those who we communicated with upfront got the 20s, the 30s, and in a handful of cases, 40 or north of 40. And so whether other lenders were able to do the same or not, not sure. But my guess is our model is conducive for M&A trading, and we can end up performing pretty well on names like this. Not to mention, I just like to talk myself up and make it seem like we're just outstanding, exceptional traders. But part of your question was, is it timing? Yeah, it's timing, just like dividend and experience, I think, in general, plays a large part in that because you really want to gauge what behavior is going to be like in terms of do you trade it early? Do you trade it late? How much do you trade at certain levels? And so there's a bunch of different strategies and that at the margin can make a difference, I think, to your yeah. average print on a deal like this or on a dividend name. But it's more of the interaction and communication with clients. I've been here in other shops and it really makes a big difference to be able to have a meaningful partnership type conversation with your clients and say, hey, this is where the value is. It is significant difference. We had some clients who took us up on it. Were you saying that you think this is going to continue, that the yeah. market's going to be friendly for these types of trades going forward? Yeah, I think the market in general thinks that. It's kind of more of what I've read as opposed to an opinion, but I think there's plenty of M&A to happen on a go forward. How they happen, it matters what the structure of those deals looks like, but there was one announced in Korea. Celtrion is collapsing a handful, two lines, but one first this year, and that looks like it'll have some value for us. Novartis, Swiss company, I think, announced a deal that might have some value. So yeah, I think it's going to continue. It's pent up, you know, whether we see IPOs or we see M&A, we talk about it almost every podcast, but it's starting to happen now. So good to see. Going back to Peter's question, how much would a more traditional agent that's running a pooled program, how much would they trade without direct client election information, but just knowing that their overall lendable base likely mm -hmm. is going to have a certain amount of take no action yep. elections anyway? Like what, yeah. your experience at past lenders, is that a strategy that they would employ in this instance? Yep. And if so, like, would they do that on a pretty large part of the book or is there a risk <laughs> that they wouldn't want to take? 
Do you have there's a feel risk. for that? Yeah, there's risk. You can only burn your counterparts once and then your stock is seen as unstable. And if you do it, your whole program is seen as unstable. So at 10, 15, 20% in that range. Okay. So really, pretty, pretty low generally. Yeah. Pretty low. Yeah. And you can get away with it if you're a large enough agent lender. One of the big custodians who have large books, they're apt to see take no action of that kind of size, but it's deal dependent. Each deal depends. So I can't really speak to it, but I think that's what we would do here. If we had no communication, we would do something in the 10 to 15% range, knowing our client behavior. I think what you really need to do is take a deep dive on what, if they're index trackers, what index they track and go from there based on that client's behavior going backwards. We try and do that too, but one other question, Jim, based upon the index trackers, did something change along the way in terms of expectations on how this deal would transpire in terms of the opportunity on this type of trade once Kenview was announced to being added into the S&P the index? 500. Right. Can you maybe just speak to that, like the before and after knowing that it was going to be added to S&P? Did that really change any of the dynamics for the trade? That was right the middle of my two weekers. So I'm guessing you probably know more about how that changed the dynamics than, <laughs> right. than I do because you're asking the question. But it did a little bit. I think when I looked at the deal initially, the concern on our side was how do you get short KBU? There's not that many shares. J&J owns 90% of the company. They had already previously spun off just 10%. Is that 10% in the market? How big can this trade be if you can only get short? So when they got added to the S&P 500, and I was on a beach somewhere sipping a Mai Tai, I thought, well, that's great because now we know S&P trackers will have to buy KVU. And so there might be a willingness to do some trading on the KVU side to be able to facilitate more of the J&J KVU spinoff trade for their clients. So basically creating more KVU. So I saw it as a positive for the growth of the trade overall in terms of size. But in terms of pricing, I don't know exactly how it impacted the day-to-day pricing. These types of trades often do get our clients thinking about doing things themselves. Can you tell me why that is and why it's a good idea to use an agent instead of doing it directly? Many of our clients have trading desks. And anytime a trade is put on, certainly for it's easier, I would say, for pension funds than it would be for asset managers like a 40 Act or something where you generally are trading one way long in that case. But pensions can go both ways and trade multiple products, whether it's swaps, options, or traditional. So if there's enough in it, they might think it makes more sense for them to trade it themselves. And they could do that. They could just tender it and then sell on the backside of the deal. You do that, you take market risk that you wouldn't otherwise take when you do it through securities lending. And securities lending is you get it up front. So you're locked in. What happens with us, the practical side of this trade is we agree to the trades before we book them. So if you take a look at the on loan for this trade, it spiked beginning of this week, came off the end of this week, but we agreed to stuff weeks ago. So you agree to the economics when the market moves your way, as opposed to waiting and trading. I just think it can be a lot cleaner to do it through securities lending. If you do a swap, you're taking counterparty risk. Some Clients may not see that as a whole lot of risk, but you get indemnification when you do it through your agent lender. I guess there's a number of reasons to do it and not do it either way. What I do think is important and valuable is working with your agent lender. We had clients who did it themselves. We had clients who did it through us. We had clients who did it through Swap. But the dialogue was there. And I think that dialogue talking about the pricing helps all parties involved. And so partnering with your client in that way adds value to both the client and to ESEC as a program. The direct dialogue that Brooke's team and your team have with clients is truly unique. 
and yeah. is a competitive advantage in this space. It's also a competitive advantage in one-off trades, which I would argue are becoming more and more important. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. working on a bunch of one-off trades in the peer space, but I know you're having one-off dialogue with a lot of different dealers and facing off with specific clients on trade ideas. How much of that is your time and effort these days versus just managing the desk? I do very little managing the desk these days, just at a high level and there for oral support. And a lot of what I do is those one-off trades. And it is very concentrated revenue in securities lending in the last three, four, five years. And this year was no exception. And so because of that, you focus on those big high names and the dialogue with clients. It's important that they get the focus from the senior folks on the desk. And so that's what most of the senior guys on the trading side spend a disproportionate amount of time on. But I think it's appropriate. And it's probably not going to go away anytime soon, right? If you think yeah. about all the regulatory changes and T1 and everything that's happening, there will be workarounds and there will be new solutions. And many of them are bespoke, unique to a particular broker type or a particular broker and require certain trade types and setups. And so that's whether you're talking about name specific, like a, a particular ticker, or you're talking about a trade type or a basket of trades. That's kind of what we do, one-off trades. Peter, any closing words of wisdom or things on your horizon that you'd like to share? A lot going on. A lot of bespoke alternative solutions going on. That's where I'm spending my time. And that's kind of what's driving my questions to Jim. But yeah. there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in our space and none of it's traditional. A lot of it is one-off bespoke new innovations. And it's pretty exciting to me, but a lot of good engagement, a lot of time with Jim. I need Jim for most of these conversations. I agree. It is better than the normal day-to-day. -day. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and there aren't a lot of people in our space doing these alternative solutions. So it's a really interesting space for us to be in. And I think it sets us up well for talking to new clients and getting more done with existing clients. So I'm pretty optimistic getting into the end of the year. All right. Well, that's a word from our salesman. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and as you guys will know, or at least Brooke will know that I'm not always optimistic. But on a Friday, you're optimistic. Yep. Hanging with you guys. I mean, nothing's better than that. All right, yeah. friends. Well, I like that. It's good to be back with you listeners. Thank you for spending the time with us again. As always, if you have praise for Jim, let him know directly. It really helps. Always. And Peter and I will just go along for the ride. Thanks everyone. Bye guys. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.